Welcome back to another 4 Minutes of Threads. I was a bit distressed to realise this, but this will be our penultimate Threads episode. Now don't worry, we will scrutinise another nuclear war film in the same detail, probably when the wind blows, but we all know nothing is as great as Threads. When I've completed the 4 Minutes of Threads series, I'm going to edit out all the intros and outros and stitch them all together into one mammoth four minutes of threads episode. I hope you'll enjoy that. You know I don't subject you to any ads here, so it'll just be pure threads. So let's go on with it. We start our four minute segment in the lecture theatre where the children are gathered and they're watching a crackly old video of words and pictures. We talked about the significance of the children's educational programme Words and Pictures in the last episode. The one the children are being made to watch is about bones. Obviously it's designed to teach children a bit about anatomy and bones, whilst also throwing in a bit of grammar, because we learn about skeleton of a cat, a cat's skeleton. I wonder why Mick Jackson chose this particular episode of Words and Pictures. Because there were plenty of them by 1983, when Threads was being made. Because it was a hugely prolific educational show designed for British schools. And lots of them had cute and innocent episode titles like uh, Dizzy Duncan, Who Took the Farmer's Hat, and Mrs Lather's Laundry. But Threads doesn't choose the ones with the cute subjects. Threads chooses a clip from an episode called Funny Bones, which was broadcast in April 1983. The full thing is on YouTube if you want to watch it without the the grisly crackle of radiation damage. So I wonder if it's too simplistic to say that they chose this episode because it allows the children to be presented with images of skeletons and skulls as opposed to cute puppies and rainbows. We are seeing things which obviously represent death and decay. And we specifically see a cat's skeleton and a bird's skeleton. Both of those animals, as you know, feature in threads. We know that Jimmy loved his birds and that Ruth had a pet cat. So we can assume that Jane, had there never been a nuclear war, would have been raised in a household with cats and birds. She would have known the birds as cheery, chirpy, noisy little things, and the cat as a fluffy, warm thing to snuggle on her lap or nuzzle at her cheek. But there will be none of that now. All she knows of cats and birds now is their skeletons. She will have seen dead birds. She will have seen dead cats. Where her mum and dad knew the living and loving animals, she just knows their bones. She'll never know the love of a pet cat, just as she'll never know that there was once a grandmother knitting tiny cardigans for her on a sofa of a big Victorian middle-class home. 
In the lecture theatre, the children are being watched over by an old lady. We can assume that she is too old and infirm to be out doing manual labour, but of course no one these days gets the luxury of retiring and taking things easy, so she's been given a less strenuous job to monitor the children. The old woman sits at the side and watches words and pictures along with the children, and she mouths the words. This implies that she has seen it a thousand times, knows it off by heart. If so, does it mean that they are taking small batches of children where they can be spared from their manual labour in the fields, and giving them this tiny little scrap of education? And so the old woman has seen this video over and over. Is this all they have to show them? There is no video library to choose from, no regular TV broadcasts. All they have, by way of education, is this crackling video, which gets played over and over. And once the kids have seen it, then there you are. You've had your education. You've passed your test. Now go back out into the fields, maybe with that tune ringing in your head. If you're head hasn't been so fried and ruined and destroyed that it can still hold a tune, process a memory. Looking again at the old lady, she resembles a babushka. No offence to old Soviet ladies, but this is surely the stereotypical image of a babushka from the 1980s. She is missing some teeth and has a headscarf wrapped around her skull. I wonder if that was a, a slight dig at the Soviets, suggesting that in our worst moment, in our ultimate decline, we will resemble the Ruskies. I'm just trying to be funny, of course. Um, no doubt she is wrapped in a headscarf because it's cold. Nuclear winter. And maybe also because she has lost her hair from radiation. As for the toothlessness, well, that's obvious. There are no more dentists, no more electric toothbrushes, no more floss and mouthwash. And, yes, radiation can provoke bleeding gums and loss of teeth. But she does look like a caricature of a Soviet babushka, one who has lived through the Holodomor and Stalingrad and Chernobyl and who has seen it all. There is nothing left which can frighten this old lady. In the next scene, the children have moved into another room. They now sit in a row behind a desk. Above them is a cracked light fitting, which is leaking drips of water into the room. Its original purpose, of course, twisted. It's supposed to let in light. Instead, it lets in dirty water. And was this room once a classroom? Again, its original purpose now twisted, because the children at their desks here are not here to learn and to be enlightened and educated. They sit facing a huge high window, and you will note that the window has been draped in the same protective plastic which we saw covering the TV in the lecture theatre. Is it to keep out fallout? Well, after so many years, the fallout has surely reduced to a tolerable level. So maybe it's simply to keep out 
dust and rain and wind, because the windows are probably cracked and leaking, perhaps broken completely. Normally, of course, you'd expect curtains to do that job, to keep out drafts, but we can assume that any curtains have been taken down and have been ripped apart, because that is what the children are doing now, bent over their desks. They're not doing reading and writing and arithmetic. They're all hard at work unpicking fabrics. They are taking apart clothes and reducing them to their very basic element, the threads. Because what good now is a fancy brocade curtain or a posh cashmere jumper or a richly patterned skirt? There is no room and no use for such luxuries. The basics are needed now. We need sacks and blankets and scarves and gloves. We need to undo all that fancy work and get the basic utilitarian stuff back. We need to go back to the very threads of the fabric and start all over. It's interesting that this unpicking of fabric is happening here in Yorkshire. Because cotton and Cotton mills are, of course, what helped make the north of England rich in the Industrial Revolution. So much of this region's progress rested on fabric, the making of fabric. And now the skills of the weaver and the hard labour of the mill workers, it's all being undone. It's all being regressed. At least when the labourers in those infamous dark satanic mills were working, they were part of progress. Sure, they might not have got to enjoy directly the fruits of the progress, but nonetheless they were part of the Industrial Revolution, of Britain's upward trajectory. Now, those who labour with the fabrics and the threads can't look along the line of history and see a light. They can't think, well, I labour here now and wear my fingers to the bone and get my lungs furred up with cotton shreds, but... At least my children and my children's children will be living in a better world. This industrial revolution will eventually bring workers' rights and better pay and the banning of child labour. Time off, holidays at the seaside, it's all going to get better one day. There will be none of that for our current workers. There is nothing to look forward to. There is no sense that they are part of a revolution. Simply a regression. In the corner, the babushka nods off. But we see that someone else is watching the children. On a shelf, there is a marble bust. Now, I can't make out who it is, but I don't suppose it matters. If it's a marble bust, it'll be some notable guy, it'll be some genius, it'll be a great man of history. And now that great man's blank marble eyes look down on this miserable scene, the unpicking of threads, the regression. In our next scene, a caption tells us it is now 13 years later. That is, 13 years after the bomb dropped. And we are given a succession of black and white images. The first shows the total destruction of the city. Ruined buildings, endless debris, 
It actually reminded me of the scene at Ground Zero on 9-11. Because we see the stumps of two tall buildings standing in the debris. And another building has been sheared of its cladding. And we see a broken bit of latticework sticking out from the interior. Is that another example of how bleak and realistic Threads is? That it thrusts your mind into real-life horrors? That happened previously, um, before the bomb dropped, when we saw the milk float trundling down the Kemp Street. And the sign on the front said it was from the Hillsborough Dairy. Of course, I'm not saying Threads is magically foreshadowing these terrible tragedies. I'm just saying that the mind, when watching Threads, is already in such a dark place that it's a matter of relative ease to switch to thoughts of 9-11 or Hillsborough. You're primed, perhaps, to think of disaster, horror, mass death. And so a simple image or a sign on a milk float can easily tip you towards those thoughts. Of course, when we look at the the total destruction at Ground Zero on 9-11, for example, and then we look at the site now, I've never been to New York, but obviously I can see it on Google, it's been it's been cleared and repaired. Likewise with Hiroshima, for example. Total destruction once, but now it's a neat, tidy, gleaming city. That's obviously because help was available. Same with Coventry and Dresden and Hamburg and Tokyo during the war. They're all spick and span now. Because help was available. Even if that help came from your wartime enemy, the fact is you were not going to be left in that state. For Sheffield, in this image we see here, there will be no such help. No one is able to swoop in with fire engines and diggers and ambulances and architects and fix it all. No one is coming to help you. This is it. There will be no BuzzFeed article saying Sheffield after the bomb and Sheffield now. The difference will blow your mind. Another black and white image shows us people foraging and scraping amongst a pile of debris. Being black and white, it looks like a photo from some World War II horror from Leningrad maybe or Stalingrad, especially as the white in the photo looks like snow. That's a reminder that a lot of the horrors in the war game were directly inspired by World War II, particularly the film's firestorm scenes. And also when we see in the war game a bucket of wedding rings, that was taken from the experience of Dresden, where wedding rings after the firestorm were removed from burned bodies to be used as identification. So that reminds us of the the chain of horror in which Threads finds itself. I talk in the BBC chapter of my book how the war game led to A Guide to Armageddon, which then led to Threads. So that chain reaches back to real life, to Dresden and Hamburg. And of course, you can say that Dresden and Hamburg and the Second World War completely leads back to the First World War. So Threads is part of a chain of horrors going all the way back to 1914. And how naive were we, or was I and many of us, 
to think that chain had finally broken at the end of the Cold War. The next black and white image is of two men working down a mine. Now, in amongst all the bleakness and despair, does this image suggest progress? When Threads was broadcast, we were of course in the midst of the furious miner strike. One side would have argued that mining was the backbone of British industry and that hundreds of towns and villages and thousands of families depended on it, and it was good honest labour. The other side would have argued it was dangerous and outdated and a dying industry trying to hold the government to ransom. So I have no doubt that this image of miners, um, particularly to a Yorkshire audience, is a powerful one. These miners might represent working class labour, the ordinary man, and perhaps the blameless man, because surely these guys are the, the furthest extreme from the political and military elites who drove us into nuclear war. And of course we know that the writer of Threads, Barry Hines, was a proud, working-class, left-wing Yorkshireman. So I can imagine that if he had a say in this image being used, then yes, it would be there to represent progress or hope, showing us that there are still attempts being made to work and to labour and to improve in post-nuclear Britain. We haven't all given up, we're still trying, and maybe, now that the old system has been smashed, we can find a way back to traditional ways of working. But of course others might see it as just another sign of regression. Mines had been closing down across Britain for decades, and yet here we are, back down the mines, sending workmen back into danger and darkness. Another thing which uh, sprung to mind when I saw an image of men working down the mines was a paper that I found in the archives in Edinburgh discussing what to do with the millions of corpses that we will have after a nuclear war. We know that it would be, Threads tells us this itself, that it would be wasteful of manpower and fuel to dig mass graves for them all. So this paper that I found made a few suggestions on what to do with them, and one of them was to dump the bodies into disused mine shafts. So if the mining industry didn't spring back into use after the bomb, well, this was one other suggested purpose for all of Britain's mines. The next image we see is of a traction engine. These were, like, small steam trains, but designed, of course, to run on the lands instead of on rails. And they didn't pull carriages, they would have pulled ploughs or heavy loads. Google tells me these machines were hard to manoeuvre and were noisy and heavy and unpleasant. But when they appeared in the mid-19th century, they changed the face of agriculture, because previously the only thing you could have used for that job would be a horse. So, it was great in the mid-19th century, but not so great if they have to make a reappearance in the late 20th. Another sign, then, that we are going backwards. But again, it does imply that work is being done. There is still some form of labour going on in Britain. We haven't just regressed completely to being 
brutes gouging at one another for leftover food. We haven't given up yet. Of course, in Britain, we know that there is a fondness for these old traction engines, uh, likewise with steam engines, of course, and that many of them were and are preserved by enthusiasts, and they get rolled out at heritage days and steam fairs, for example. So maybe that's where this guy came from in threads. He would have been brought out of the local museum and put back to work on the fields. The idea of these old steam engines, both locomotives and the traction engines, being brought back to save the nation reminds me of the rumour of Britain's strategic steam reserve. It is said, of course, has never been confirmed, and it's surely just a a nice uh, urban legend, that during the Cold War, Britain moved some steam locomotives into shelter somewhere and kept them in working order in case of nuclear war, when we would have to go back to steam power. Now, it's just a rumour, of course, and it can be easily picked apart. Uh, For example, the rail network in Britain is surely not instantly accessible to big old steam engines. Indeed, after a nuclear war, it may not be accessible to any kind of train, with all the damage, of course. It's not just like a toy train set, where you just pick up the engine, place it on the tracks, and off it goes. And where would you have hidden these hundreds and hundreds of huge old steam trains? Where are they? Well, some people argue, and I love this idea, that they are hiding in plain sight. All these railway enthusiasts, all these retired blokes who devote their weekends to running heritage railways, that's it. That is the strategic steam reserve. That is why they are kept in good order, kept working, They are hiding there in plain sight. A new scene opens. We are high up on the moors and we see a filthy, grimy hand piling sticks onto a fire. It's Jane taking refuge in a barn and she has a dead rabbit beside her. So she has solitude, she has warmth, and she has something to eat. Naturally, she will not be allowed to enjoy this. Two boys barge into the barn and confront her. She leaps to her feet and grabs the two essential things, a stick and the dead rabbit, because there's no way of knowing what these boys will consider more valuable, a girl's body or the rabbit's. They begin to shout at each other, and the language they speak in, or the dialect rather, is garbled and strange. As we know, children are no longer receiving any proper education and there is no caring adult or teacher to read to them, to speak to them, to make sure they learn the alphabet and know how to speak properly. Language has been brutalised and left to rot along with so much else. And so a strange dialect has arisen amongst the young people. It's hard in the scene to understand precisely what they're saying, although of course you can get the gist of it from watching the film, but in terms of what they are saying precisely, I was very glad to have a copy of the thread script here. So I will read you their short exchange and then play the scene for you. Okay, the script gives us the dialect and then in brackets the standard English, so I will read you the standard English uh, line 
and then play you the dialect from the film. As the two boys rush in, Spike shouts, What is it? His companion Gaz says, I saw it, it's a rabbit. Spike says, Give it to us. Gaz says, You better had, or else we'll beat you. Jane, brandishing her stick, shouts, You'd better stand back, or else you'll get hit. Gaz says, Where are you staying? Are you coming with us? There is no translation given for the next two lines because they're quite obvious. Jane says, Where? Gaz says, Us place. Gaz and Spike. And then Spike, again back to a translation, says, Share the rabbit with us then. Give it here. You'll hear the word coney a few times in this exchange in the film. Coney is an old uh, Yorkshire word for rabbit. So that old word has been revived again. A sign of regression, going back to ancient words. So here's the scene played where you can hear this uh, brutal dialogue between the three children, or the three teenagers, Jane, Gaz and Spike. Oi! One day! Satan! Coney! Yes, Gizzard! Bah! Elthus O'Brien! Best stand off us again! Gizzard! Warren's dark back! Come on, us! Where? Come on! Us plight! Gazzle Spike! Shannon Coney, eh? Come on! Come on, Shannon Coney! Gizzard! Come on! Gizzard! The next scene begins and we hear an adult voice shout. Come back here with that! The three young people, Jane, Gaz and Spike, we assume they've formed a gang and they are running through the debris of the city. They've stolen some food and are now trying to make their escape back up onto the moor. The adult voice we heard, which shouts at them, shouts in perfectly standard English. Another reminder then of the absolute chasm between the older generation and the one born and raised since the bomb dropped. They don't even speak the same language anymore. As the young people run, a shot is fired and the script tells me it is Gaz who is shot. He falls dead and the other two run on without him. They don't even give him a glance because getting away with your chunk of stolen bread is far more important. I assumed that the person who fired the gun at them was a soldier or policeman. But who knows? It could be a traffic warden, armed and guarding a food depot. Or, given that we are now 13 years after the bomb, maybe all semblance of order has gone and guns have now made it into the hands of any local who has managed to grab one. Maybe ordinary people are now patrolling the city making and upholding their own law. And maybe that is why we don't see the person who shouts and who fires the gun. Because it could be anyone. Speaking of locals trying to maintain order after a nuclear war in the absence of an official police force, see my older episode in the archive called The Surrey Street Watchers. So, Gaz is dead. 
Spike and Jane are left, and we see them run up onto the moor. Their two tiny little black figures make their way across the horizon, up to their hideout high on the moors. And as they cross the moor, we see the huge sky above them, and it looks relatively clear. Previously, we saw a pregnant Ruth running across the moor, trying to find a barn to shelter in, and she was a similar tiny black figure against a vicious grey sky, heavy with fallout and soot. But now, the sky is clearer. But it's hardly a cause for rejoicing, because nothing beneath the sky has improved. If anything, things have gotten worse. That fact is emphasised by what happens next. When the pregnant Ruth was running across the moor under a heavy sky, she was seeking a safe place in which to give birth. Miserable conditions, yes, but the birth was obviously a hopeful event. Here, her daughter does the same, runs across the moor under a wide sky, seeking the safety of a barn. But what happens in the barn is not a hopeful event. It is violent, brutish and distressing. Spike and Jane reach the barn and Jane immediately starts devouring the piece of bread she has stolen. Spike angrily demands a piece of it, or all of it. Jane refuses. They start to struggle. Spike forces her to the ground. The camera moves away. We are now seeing the barn's exterior. We see barbed wire and broken fence posts. We hear Jane cry out in what sounds like pain. Turning to the script, this is described as, quote, they have crude intercourse. Without having read that, I would have assumed that this was rape. But the script doesn't use that word. And then I thought, well, Jane is under the age of consent, so it would still be classed as rape, surely. And then I realised that none of this matters to Jane, because she won't know about such things. She won't know about consent. She won't know there are, or were, laws in place to protect her. She won't know that men could be punished for doing this to her. She will have no idea that this behaviour, just 13 short years ago, would have been considered wrong, and that her mum and dad would have been horrified, and would have talked about going to the police, about emergency contraception, about counselling, about medical care. That has all vanished. All the protections once offered to women by the law, and the care hopefully offered by a loving family and by the NHS, all gone. And that made me so sad for Jane. Imagine if you could sit her down and tell her about all of this. All of these laws and systems that have been built over the years to try and protect women, to try and protect girls like her. She would probably just stare blankly, the way she stared at words and pictures, and then go back to her chunk of bread. That is the end of this four minutes. And as I said earlier, the next four minutes of threads will be our last. Of course, the podcast will continue. 
and we will no doubt turn our four minutes attention to another nuclear war film. As I said, I'm thinking of When the Wind Blows. Let me thank my newest patrons, Peter Lawson, Dylan Smith and Alison White. Thank you for signing up. You guys are supporting this podcast, which means that I don't need to bring any annoying ads into it. It allows us to be focused totally on nuclear war. So thank you. Thank you to all my patrons. Of course, these guys now have access to all of the bonus podcasts. They are there for you now on the Patreon site, patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. Thank you all for listening. <laughs>